Hello and welcome to this podcast from Faber. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is James Shapiro. James is Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University, and best known for his book 1599, A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare, for which he won the 2006 Samuel Johnson Prize. For his new book, he has ventured into choppy waters to tackle the claims that the plays attributed to Shakespeare were not written by him at all, but by Francis Bacon, or the Earl of Oxford, or any of a host of other contenders. His interest is not in charting each one of these myriad claims and counterclaims, but in exploring what impulses, what cultural forces underpin these often vehement attempts to topple Shakespeare from his pedestal. It's a cause which has numbered many eminent figures, such as Freud and Mark Twain, among its devotees. When I met James, I began by asking him to explain what exactly he was in pursuit of in this book. What I thought I was in pursuit of wasn't entirely clear to me when I began. What originated really as an exploration of a subject that had been largely taboo in academic circles turned into an exploration of the extent to which Shakespeare scholars, as much as anti-Stratfordians, were responsible for the whole belief that Shakespeare didn't write the plays. What do I mean by that? What I end up learning in this book was that at the root of the question, who wrote Shakespeare, were certain assumptions about the relationship between a writer and his work. And these tended to be autobiographical assumptions. We live in an age of memoir in which we assume everybody, whether a fiction writer or a nonfiction writer, is telling his or her own stories in the works. And to a large extent, that's true of 20th century and much 21st century literature. But that wasn't true of Shakespeare's day. Yet this was an assumption that's shared by all those who don't believe Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, as well as many who do. There are those, and I count myself among them, who would stand in front of classes and say, The Tempest is an autobiographical work, Shakespeare's great leave-taking, Shakespeare's Prospero. Now, once you believe that these works are autobiographical, then almost anything goes. You can believe they were written by a man who was a doctor, a lawyer, a butcher, or a countess. You can believe, or might believe, that they were written by somebody other than Shakespeare. If, say, the Earl of Oxford had been captured by pirates and had three daughters, shouldn't he have a greater claim to have written Hamlet and King Lear than someone like Shakespeare of Stratford who didn't? So that way madness lies. What I try to do in this book is not go tit for tat with the various arguments saying Oxford had three daughters, Shakespeare did not, but rather look at the underlying assumptions and the history of this controversy. I became very quickly less interested in what people thought and much more interested in why they thought what they did and when they began thinking that. And that took me back to the origins of the controversy. And along the way, the controversy was believed to have started in the late 18th century. And it turns out that the document that dates to that time is a forgery. That was one of the the most surprising and exciting finds in writing this book. Since 1850, over 50 or so candidates have been proposed as the author of these works. And all of them have been based, all of these arguments or all these claims have been based on two kinds of arguments. One autobiographical, the other topical, which is to say that the stories that the plays tell are not really about the plays themselves, but about what's going on in the world at that time. And 
all I've tried really hard to do in this book is explain why people began to think that and what's really wrong-headed about it. And it's a book, in a sense, about why smart people think dumb things. Uh, we all know a lot of smart people in our lives who say and think dumb things. This particular controversy has attracted more of them than the average subject matter. Sigmund Freud, Henry James, Mark Twain, and in our own day, Supreme Court justices, leading actors of the British stage. So I became fascinated with what underlying assumptions they might have that would lead them to believe that Shakespeare did not write the plays. What had happened by the mid to late 18th century? What was the shift? You mentioned this interpretation that literature was essentially autobiographical, and also the fact that for the, the first century and a half after Shakespeare's death, there was no question about authorship. So what was it that was changing? One of the things that I learned in writing this book, and I've been teaching Shakespeare for a quarter century, and I learned a lot. Uh, one of the things I learned was that no one thought these works were autobiographical, the sonnets or the plays, until the end of the 18th century. And that's when Edmund Malone, the greatest Shakespeare scholar of his day and perhaps of all time, frustrated they couldn't complete a cradle-to-grave biography of Shakespeare, cheated a bit. And what do I mean by that? He was a, an exposure of forgers and fakes and frauds of all kinds. But he forged connections between the life and the works. He came upon Sonnet 93, the one that begins describing how the speaker is like a deceived husband. And he decided, based on his reading of that sonnet, that Shakespeare must have been talking about his own relationship with Anne Hathaway, who must have been cheating on him when he was away in London and she in Stratford. And he constructs a whole story about how she didn't deserve him and the marriage was terrible. It might have been terrible, it might have been wonderful. We have no idea and no access to this. And in fact, George Stevens, another great Shakespearean at the time, warned Malone, don't go there, don't open up this Pandora's box. Malone did. And he's writing right at the end of the 18th century. The Romantics, Coleridge, Wordsworth, the Schlegels in Germany, seized on this way of reading because it so resembled the autobiographical work that they were doing in works like Wordsworth's The Prelude and other major works of this period. It was so attractive that it soon began to become almost a game of identifying where Shakespeare is telling his own stories and his works. The hardest thing for readers and scholars to accept is this is a post-19th century construction. As much as we think we find Shakespeare in his works, we're putting him there. And you see in the book, repeated again and again, the great difficulty which people have in dealing with the fact that Shakespeare had been essentially deified by this time. And at the same time, what we knew about the life of the man was, I think in the words of Henry James, supremely vulgar. Yes. And the, in, in some way, some account had to be given of how these works had come from this man. One of the things that I had to navigate was the story of how Shakespeare's life was invented and reinvented. Most of us turn to the latest biographies and discover what the man was like. But in fact, all of these little bits and pieces that fit into modern biographies were discovered independently and over time, so that the story of Shakespeare keeps changing. In the 17th century, we have anecdotes a couple of generations after Shakespeare died circulating, and they tell one kind of story. But once the hunt was on for documents, 
the only documents that survived, that would probably survive for most of us, are legal ones. Business arrangements, real estate, marital, birth, death records, and the like. And of the handful that survived for Shakespeare, many of them have to do with financial dealings or legal dealings. And because of that, the biography began to go in the direction of Shakespeare, a money-grubbing, grain-hoarding merchant. And even as that movement was taking place, the deification of Shakespeare as the greatest writer in English and maybe of all time was taking place. The gap between the biographical gritty facts and the hagiographic biographical story grew so great that eventually the weight of it forced people to begin to argue around the 1840s and 1850s that somebody else must have written these plays. And you've also at the same time got the beginnings of questioning, for example, the existence of Homer and also looking at the Bible with a particular method of textual scholarship, which then could be applied, the, the, the higher criticism. Yes. One of the, the other things that I got to look into a bit and, and, and realized uh, that I hadn't known was the extent to which arguments about the existence of Homer as the solo great mind, that blind bard that wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. Well, by the end of the 18th century, that was exploded as a myth. And by the early 19th century, arguments about the Gospels and the life of Jesus also began to drive a wedge between the myth and the man. And these arguments quickly were imported by those questioning Shakespeare's authorship. So this was a very, very critical moment, the early 19th century, late 18th century, for how we imagine authorship and how we imagine Shakespeare. So while Shakespeare may have been an early modern writer, the authorship controversy is a very modern one. And we live in an age of memoir in which we tend to have these romantic assumptions about literature, which would have been foreign to Shakespeare and his contemporaries. And one of the things that I'm trying to do in this book is to remind us that Shakespeare is not our contemporary, however powerfully his plays continue to speak to us. When does this idea of the text as something to be literally decrypted begin? Because at the start, it seems to be you have to try and explain the text and then explain the life through the text. But actually, actual decryption in a cryptographic sense actually becomes part of the story. The cryptographic story is uh, was tedious to research because I had to read through scores of cryptological analyses of Shakespeare, which always ended up proving that he was somebody else. They had a, a magical and mysterious way of ending up just where the authors of these studies wanted them to. The invention of Morse code uh, was significant because all of a sudden from schoolboys or Boy Scouts on through the highest levels of society and writers like Edgar Allan Poe and others were beginning to understand and appreciate the ways in which knowledge and information could be encrypted. The encryption is one of the most fascinating parts of the story. The Baconians rose and then fell on the, uh, the business of codes and secret ciphers. And yet there were unintended benefits. My favorite was William Friedman one of the, the great cryptological minds of the 20th century, was brought over from his career as a, a medical student in Cornell to Chicago, where he was hired to work doing cryptological analysis of Baconian ciphers. 
he quickly became the leading scholar and investigator of codes in the world. And his ability to break the Japanese code during the Second World War resulted in a victory at the Battle of Midway and probably a victory in the Pacific. So I'm not always saying that everything is bad about this controversy. All things have unintended consequences. And in this sense, although the crypts always, uh, the, the codes and uh, encrypted messages turned out to be fabrications on the part of Baconians, this had a nice happy ending. What do you think explains the peculiar tenacity with which this question has been pursued by individuals, even to the point of insanity, and also by eminent figures you mentioned earlier, Mark Twain and Sigmund Freud, who didn't just have a passing interest in it, it seems to have become an obsession. There is more than a bit of obsession in this, and uh, I know that from the hate mail I've received since the book has just come out, and uh, from reading the uh, uh, web conversations, uh, online conversations of Marlovians, Oxfordians, and others who don't believe Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. I think it really has to do with a sense of conspiracy. We live in an age of conspiracy and a suspicion of authority and a suspicion, I suppose, of people like me. There are those who've actually argued that uh, Shakespeare scholars are in on the take and are being paid off to suppress this information. And that may be true, but somebody's left my name off the, uh, the list of those who should receive a monthly check. I think the conviction that one's belief founded on faulty assumptions has to be true. If, if I believe that Shakespeare's works were truly autobiographical, I'd suspect that somebody else wrote them because somebody else's life can be made to fit those plays better than Shakespeare's. The problem, of course, with this is you have to give up believing that Shakespeare had the greatest imagination, or in fact, any imagination at all, and that all he was doing was recycling bits and pieces of things he had experienced in his plays. And I'm not willing to go there. So it simply becomes a puzzle with a solution. People love puzzles, and people love solving enigmas, and people love solving mysteries. And it's no surprise that the who done it arose in the same 19th century moment that the Shakespeare authorship question did. But, I mean, as you, as you alluded to earlier, you, you think that, let's say, mainstream Shakespearean scholars have also, as it were, played into the hands of people who seek for alternative authorship solutions by, by themselves, indulging in, is it fair to say, indulging in autobiographical explanations? You know, Malone set a lot of precedents, and one of the precedents he set was this. I read Shakespeare, I exist deeply in these works, and I know what their author thought, and I know when he is writing his own experience into those works. I spent a quarter century reading and teaching Shakespeare, and that's basically all I do unless I'm writing about him. And I don't know where anyone has the confidence to say this is where he is putting his own life into his work. Now, I'm sure there are places where his life does appear in those works, but we don't know when or how or why. We don't know enough about his daily life or about the life of any early modern writer to make those kind of claims. So one of the things that I'm trying to do is chasten fellow Shakespeareans who want to indulge in that desire to say Hamlet was written on the death of his father or the death of his son. It may have been, it may not have been, and we'll never know. And yet persisting in teaching and writing in those ways about Shakespeare's life enables those 
who believe that Oxford or Marlowe or Queen Elizabeth wrote the plays to make arguments based on the same shaky foundations. But, I mean, I was very interested in what you say in the book about the fact during your own teaching lifetime, there has been a genuine revolution in the understanding of how the plays were written. And so when you began teaching, the notion of them, some of them being collaborative efforts was, was alien. I did not know when I began teaching that three of the works on my syllabus that I regularly taught, Titus Andronicus, Timon of Athens, and Pericles, were collaborative works. And uh, three other works as well at that time, Henry VIII, Two Noble Kinsmen, which I didn't teach those works. And we now know Cardinio, which was a, a lost play that Shakespeare collaborated on with Fletcher, existed as well. Macbeth happened to be tied up by Middleton after his death, so the play we have has Middletonian touches in it. The question of collaboration is slowly, slowly winning acceptance in Shakespeare circles. It makes it very hard for those who read the works autobiographically. If you know Shakespeare wrote 60% of Time of Athens and Middleton wrote 40%, either Shakespeare sought out a collaborator who had the same psychopathology and family troubles as he did, or you have to give up that enterprise of writing and reading the life out of the works. Although it doesn't, it doesn't seem to entirely deter the Oxfordians who, even given inconvenient death dates, see some sort of posthumous, posthumous collaboration yeah, going on. Yeah, this is the um, what I like to think of as the yard sale uh, version of Oxford dying in 1604 and Fletcher and Middleton and, and, and George Wilkin and others coming upon the estate sale and each grabbing manuscripts, uh, it doesn't work. The recent publication in the Arden series of A Double Falsehood has already made the Oxfordians nervous about some kind of conspiracy to release this because that collaborative work that's based on an earlier and lost play by Shakespeare and Fletcher that I mentioned, Cardinio, can only have been written after Cervantes, who is the source of this, Don Quixote, had published Don Quixote in 1605, a year after Oxford died. So you can just see how punishing the argument for Shakespeare the collaborator is, both for those who don't believe Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, and for those who persist in thinking that you can read the life out of the works. I mean, I'm, I'm laughing as you're describing the, the convolutions of the yard sale scenario, but the level of invective, the level mm. of passion invested mm. is quite profound. And you, you write very interestingly about how, for example, Wikipedia and the web have really changed the, the method of the, um, the debate. I follow a lot of quiet ways in which this debate is, is changing. And I would urge anyone interested in it to go look at the Wikipedia site for the Shakespeare authorship controversy not just the article, but the discussion underlying that site. And there you will see the trench warfare back and forth from defenders of Shakespeare and those who want to attack his claims to have authored the plays. And I have to say to their credit, those who attack Shakespeare are winning that war. Why? Because in wiki world, the last one to enter and delete what his opponents or her opponents said wins. And the democratization of knowledge on the web is a wonderful thing, and in this case, a very dangerous thing. I mean, maybe I can ask you in conclusion then, James, because at one point in the book, you you make a sort of implicit comparison with those who would like to see intelligent design taught alongside Darwinism. I mean, do you think, although some of this can be dismissed and laughed off as, as the fantasies of crackpots, there is actually something quite corrosive of our culture here? That's exactly the word. I'm, I'm trying to say something not just about what happened in 1900 or something that happened in, in 1600, 
but something that's happening today. And this book, and it's only slowly becoming clear to me, speaks to the way we read now. And in the end, I discovered while writing this book that all I was doing was writing a long footnote to the way we read now. And it speaks to our own comfort level with controversy, our experience of a media that believes every argument should have both sides fully represented, whether it's intelligent design or the authorship controversy. And I'm, and I'm arguing that that's probably a mistake uh, and that we have to look at the ways in which we come to understand things today and make up our minds and look at evidence. And a lot of it has to do with evidence. And one of the saddest things for me in investigating this is Supreme Court Justice Stevens, who's one of the great liberal fighters in the world, along with Justice Scalia, who is a right-wing and I think dangerous legislator, both believe that the Earl of Oxford wrote the plays. Why? Because they lack an historical understanding of evidence. And if individuals with this much power and this much, uh, uh, this greater reputation in this world win awards like Stevens just did for Oxfordian of the Year, it should give us all pause.